0: When you're looking for more and there's no place to go It's a sequels-only bonus show It's not about sequels this time, you know It's a sequels-only bonus show Doug and his pals, well, they know what to do Talking about movies without a part two Looking for more and there's no place to go It's a sequels-only bonus show Talking to stars with Doug soul. It's a sequels-only bonus show Sequels only bonus show. Hey there, Doug here. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe. Happy Monday, the last Monday of 2020, thank God. And we're gonna make either your drive to work, drive home, or just hanging out on a Monday. Make it go a lot quicker with this week's amazing bonus interview. I still can't believe that when all this started, I was lucky enough to interview so many people. But this one, D.B. Sweeney, actor, writer, director. Oh, my God. He was in so many things I loved growing up. Being a huge fan of baseball, eight men out. And I talked to Shoeless Joe Jackson. He had some amazing stories from that shoot. His ties to the whole Sheen family, Martin, Charlie, and an interesting one with Emilio, which is pretty cool. We also talked about The Cutting Edge, Fire in the Sky, Spawn, so much more. I don't want to spoil any of it. So what I want to do tell you is check out his short that he put out earlier in the year. He wrote and directed it and starred in it. Tim Sean Aston, you know Sean Aston. It's called Two Dumb Mix. I'll put the link in the episode notes. But it's also if you want to, if you're make sure you're not driving. But if you want to just write it down, it's T W O D U M I C K S dot com. Hilarious! Really cool what he's trying to do with these little shorts, reminding him of. Him watching, like, Charlie Chaplin growing up and uh, very cool. But I'm going to shut my yapper because you're going to hear the amazing D.B. Sweeney. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. How's your night going? Uh, It's not too bad. You know, the world's upside down, but at least I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. So you're out in California, right? No, I'm in Chicago. Oh, okay. Cool. Now, I know you grew up in the uh, Tri-State area, Long Island, right? Yeah, yeah, Long Island, a little town called Shoreham on the East End. Oh, nice, nice. I'm in Jersey still. It's like hours from where you grew up, but uh, that's cool. So uh, so growing up there, how did you, at what age did you, did you say like, hey, you know what, I want to try acting?
1: Well, you know, it was, uh, I went to college to try and be a baseball player and try and chased down that path, of, you know, in life, and yeah. got injured, and then I went back to, came back to, I was in New Orleans, I came back to New York, and uh, I hadn't really decided, you know, I want to be an actor, but I really didn't know what else I wanted to be, so my sister was going to NYU, and my dad, being a high school guidance counselor, was like, you gotta stay in college, so I figured, well, I'll go to NYU, and, uh, you know, I figured I didn't really want to work very hard, so I thought acting would be the easiest <laughs> thing, so I just I kind of threw my hat in that ring, and uh, it, it turned
0: out to be a good fit. It wasn't easy as I thought, but it was a, it was a good fit. That's cool. What position do you play in baseball? Play right field. And what kind of inj- injury do you have? Like diving for a ball, like something like that?
1: No, I hurt, I hurt my knee on a motorcycle, and uh, you know, I just I didn't have good I didn't have great speed to begin with, and now all of a sudden I was even further compromised. So. Okay. You know, while I was rehabbing my knee, it was like, you know, what are you gonna now? What are you gonna do next? You know, why are you while you get yourself back to where you need to be, and uh, just kind of fell into the acting thing.
0: Yeah. So at, at NYU, you studied like theater and then started doing plays there.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I enrolled in the theater program. We had the an audition, and uh, I got in. I got in with an audition, which I'd never done an audition before, but I, you know, I read some books about it. And I thought, okay, here's we. So I just dove in and did it and they put me in there but you know it was a fairly competitive program even, even at that time in the, in the 80s and uh um you know that they, they hadn't spent all the money to make it a glossy place like it is now but it was still there was a lot of good people there and I couldn't get a part in any of the plays my whole first year I was there which is be my sophomore year in college I I uh I couldn't get a part so uh I just thought about it over the summer and and uh I had found this room as part of the NYU buildings that hadn't been rehabbed yet. And it was kind of a crappy built room. And I asked the, the Dean if I could use it with some of the other broken toy actors to do our own plays. And uh, she said, yeah, go ahead, go, you know, go have fun figuring that we'd never do it. Yeah. And so we started doing plays. And uh, you know, one of the guys was Jordan Lage, uh, L-A-G-E, who's now a very respected uh, New York actor. And, and uh, he's on a lot of different TV shows. He's on Broadway all the time. Oh, nice. He was one of the guys and, uh, you know, so we just started doing plays. You know, it's like, uh, I'll play this part, you play that part. And somebody put the lights up and, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, we set up 60 chairs and usually there'd be 57 empty ones. But one <laughs> night uh, an agent came in and uh, and saw me and, uh, you know, signed me. And so then I, I started getting some opportunities to be in TV commercials and things and auditions. And I felt like, wow, this is kind of a
0: real thing. Wow. Uh, so, you know, it's funny. I talked to so many different people. Uh, at different like stages in their careers like some people in the game for like 40 years some people are new and the people I talk to that obviously make it it, they you have to make your own luck like you can't sit around waiting for okay you know I'll wait till next year and I'll try out for the play you know you made it happen and uh, just so happened that person came in wow that's crazy
1: yeah, you know, it's uh, there was a, a poster Nike had back. I think it was in the late '80s early '90s, where it was this this person running near a riverside, and you know, it was kind of a beautiful artistic shot, and it said "Just do it," you know, which became the Nike slogan. And I thought, you know, it, it, there's a million, nowadays with YouTube and everything, there's a million videos on how to be the best tennis player, how to be the best baseball player. Here's the perfect workout. Here's the perfect keto diet, and the reality is that all of those programs can probably work if you just do it. And I think that applies to acting. It applies to everything.
0: Yeah. So you're still a big baseball fan.
1: I do. I love baseball, you know, here in Chicago, I I think it's the, uh, the greatest baseball city, um, you know, between the Cubs on the North side and and the White Sox on the South side. And then, you know, all of the Midwestern minor league baseball all around it, you know, a couple hundred miles away. So it's, it's, it's pretty great. And, I, you know, I favor the White Sox because of eight men out, but I I got course, nothing against yeah. the Cubs. I really enjoyed I really enjoy watching them all last few years, all the success they had.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did you grow up like a Mads or a Yankees fan? No, you know what? I
1: was from like I mentioned the East eastern Long Island, and and a couple towns over was this this player by the name of Kyle Yastrzemski, oh, who yeah. uh, since he was a he was a Boston Red Sox. So I, I was, he was one of the first guys I became aware of. And he was my first, you know, favorite player, my all-time favorite player, and so I just, you know, if he had played for the Mets or the Yankees, that's who I would have rooted for.
0: Yeah, my middle name's Thurman, so uh, th- after Thurman Munson, my dad was diehard. <laughs> but uh,
1: so, was your dad from Ohio?
0: No, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't like okay. that. No, no, my dad's from Jersey. Oh, okay, because I know Thurman Munson, I think was from Ohio. Yeah, yeah, right outside Canton. That's where he. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's where he's from. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. So you're in Chicago now. So so, what are some of the early commercial work that you did? Well, I did
1: one commercial. That, actually, the first job I ever had in front of a, a camera of any kind was the commercial for the U.S. Army. And I did it, um, it, it, was, it was on the first moment, the last moment right before the kickoff of the Super Bowl in 1984, January 1984. And so it was kind of cool. It was the first thing I ever did. And they bought this the number one, you know, most expensive desirable spot at that time. Maybe there's a more desirable spot during the Super Bowl now. But at that time, the last spot before the kickoff was considered the key moment because everybody's watching, poised and waiting. And so they put my commercial on there and I was with a bunch of buddies of mine, just drinking a beer, having a tailgate and watching it. And it was awesome, you know, to just be with your friends and here's this commercial. And it was, it wasn't like a run around, you know, fire guns, ride the tank commercial. It was a kid and his father in a, in a garage. And the kid tells his daddy's doing, I was very emotional, kind of a, a real like little slice of life from a movie moment. And I just thought it was great. I thought it turned off great. I had no idea that the next week, my little um, small time agent got calls from Steven Spielberg's people and all these other big Hollywood hotshots who saw it. And uh, they flew me out to California. I had an audition for Back to the Future, which I didn't get, you know, for the uh, not the Michael J. Fox part, another part. And, uh, you know, I just all of a sudden it was like, wow, I was like on the map because of this one commercial. So that, that I later on, I did a commercial for Hallmark, just, which was not as widely seen or anything, but that commercial I did for the army was just, it launched me.
0: Wow. Is that crazy? Do you remember how many days it took? Did it even take a couple days to shoot?
1: Yeah, it was one day. I always remember That's because crazy. it was my brother's birthday. And, uh, you know, and it was, uh, Bruno Kirby. Um, his, oh. his dad, Bruce, Bruce Kirby was my dad and I got to know Bruce Kirby and what a great guy. I got to know Bruno later. And, and, uh, so Bruce played my dad and then I, you know, he was playing on, on Broadway the next year with Dustin Hoffman. So I went and saw the play and I got to meet Dustin Hoffman. And, you know, so it was, it was kind of fun to, uh, you know, just sort of like be introduced to the business as sort of like somebody who already had a job.
0: No, that's so cool. So you, you fly out, you try out for Back to Future, don't get it. And then did you, I'm sure you have more auditions, but the first thing on your IMDb here is Out of the Darkness, Martin Sheen film.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that's that's like a just random TV audition I went to, and uh, I don't remember the exact order of things. Sidney Lumet, the great film director, hired me for the movie called Power, and that was the first movie I did. When, you know, and I had one line. I had one line. It was, uh, and it was actually great. He's one of the only guys that ever hired me on the spot, and it was awesome to be hired. i had not one line. I had three lines. Sorry. No, wait a second. Let me make sure I get this right. Uh, I had three lines in the in the Martin Sheen Out of the Darkness thing. I had one line in the Sidney Lumet thing and uh anyway so I, I went and did the city of the met thing and then the martin sheen thing i'm on the set in the middle of the night and i'm gonna be a victim of son of sam and so it's just two kids making out in a car and then son of sam comes up and he shoots the, through the windshield and then there's supposed to be a, like the windshield's supposed to spider web and that's where they put the name of the show out of the darkness so it was a very important shot that the and they and and so they couldn't get the the, the visual effects thing to work properly so the girl that i was in the scene with she had never been anything before and she was really nervous and i said well uh, we should just probably practice you know what i mean so we're good at our part <laughs> so so uh it's a freezing night on the jersey palisades and i'm kissing this beautiful girl and i'm sure there were a lot of guys outside grumbling at me and then the funny thing is that when when they tried to do the effect of the wind chill it, it didn't work so it was like they tried it many different times they brought in different classes, they did all these things and then they sent us home so about two weeks later they bring us back and they try it again with the uh, visual effect of the glass. And once again, it doesn't work. So we go home and two weeks later, they bring me back again. And so I got paid not only for those three days that I worked, but they have this rule in, in screen actors guild where you can't be, you can't work one day here, one day, one day there, you know, they have to pay you all the days in between. So I ended up, you know, for having three lines and kissing this pretty girl, oh, wow. getting paid for like six weeks of uh, acting. So, you know, just for sitting at home.
0: That's like every teenage boy's dream.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Well, I can, I could I can live with this business."
0: Yeah, 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 that's awesome, man. And then so you work with Martin Sheen, and then throughout your career, I think at least two times you worked with Charlie, right?
1: Uh, yeah, Charlie and I did No Man's Land and Eight Men Out, and uh, Martin and I did uh, Hear No Evil and uh, Spawn, and then uh, Out of the Darkness.
0: That's awesome. So,
1: uh, very, very, I've uh, got very familiar with the uh, Sheen family.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, what would you say your first big role would it be in your eyes? Was it No Man's Land? Uh, no, the movie that
1: changed everything for me was uh, Gardens of Stone. Uh, oh, Francis okay. Ford Coppola kind of he kind of picked me out of you know he could have had anybody he wanted in Hollywood, obviously, and and by him picking me, it just sort of sent a message to Hollywood. You know, before the movie was even released, uh, I was getting offered other movies because you know it's a kind of a follower business, and you get one big part, and a lot of people will want you know if somebody. Quentin Tarantino or whoever the big hotshot director of the moment is, if they hire you, that immediately says to a lot of other people that don't trust their own convictions, that they better get a piece <laughs> of
0: you. Yeah,
1: sure. So, uh, and it, it worked in my, it worked in my benefit in that, in that case. And uh, I will be eternally grateful to Francis for picking me.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. Somebody else is looking at you. They're like, no, 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 we want him. And then you, when you get a call from him, you, you can't say No.
1: Yeah, well, I had actually I had three auditions. I had one audition. Uh, Fred Roos, the great cast director from The Godfather and a lot of other movies, he brought me in on another movie, and the director wouldn't hire me. This woman was uh, resistant to hiring me, and Fred took it so personally that he didn't listen to his advice. That he sort of made it his mission to prove her wrong. So when he brought me in to meet Francis, I think he was looking for Francis to vindicate him to this woman. <laughs> and then I had a callback, and Francis really liked me at the callback. And then by the third time. I'd been auditioning for stuff and I'd done a few bit parts like the Martin Sheen thing and so forth. And, but now I realize that, you know, a lot of times they go with the more well-known person. So in my third meeting, I actually spent most of my time trying to persuade Francis not to use me for the main part, but to give me a smaller part just so I could be in the movie. And, uh, and I guess he was, he thought that was charming. I wasn't trying to be manipulative. I was just trying to survive. (laughs) And, uh, but he, he never considered me for anything else. And he slammed me right into that leading role. So like I said, a game changer
0: wow look at that and then from there it's just like it it took off because you had no man's land really cool movie with charlie sheen and then the next year eight men out you get to play shoeless joe jackson which for a baseball player that's cool man
1: yeah that was really fun and uh you know i had great experiences i learned to hit left handed i spent a summer with the kenosha twins baseball team you know trying to perfect hitting lefty and trying to uh, you know, trying to to like live the life of I feel like in the 80s, like uh, a big league player in 1919 probably had the same amenities that a low A ball player had in, in the in the 80s. Oh yeah. In terms of you know training staff and and you know just amenities. So I just wanted to get that experience under my belt, and that was great. And then I went off and did uh, Memphis Bell in London, where we flew around a bunch of B-17s, and you know I just had a great great experience on all those movies, and uh, and then it led up to the Cutting Edge, which you know, when that came out, it kind of changed changed everything again for me because that was the first time I'd had you know, like a romantic comedy, and it was very popular. So that's when I really first started to get everywhere I went, where people would know, "Oh, that's that guy from that movie."
0: That's awesome! I'm surprised it took that long. You know, Eight minutes Out. When you look at the pe- obviously, you were in the movie, you're on set for all those days. But like, I rewatched it over the weekend. The people that are in that movie, it's unbelievable how great that cast is.
1: Yeah. it's. I mean, John sales is another one of those guys like, you know, like Coppola or whoever is one of those guys that everybody wants to work with. And, and uh, that was a really relatively low budget movie. I think it was $6 million back in the day, but to have all those people and to shoot the world series and do all the things they did, it was really, you know, really a great accomplishment. And, and we, we had a ball. I mean, all the John Cusack and, and Charlie and I and Davis right there. I mean, Gordon Clapp, so many great guys in that movie and Michael Rooker, you know, we just, oh, we yeah. had so much fun and, uh, it was just a great, great experience. So uh, I, you know, at that time I wasn't really looking to like build a long career. I didn't really think they'd let me stick around very long. So (laughs) I felt like I wanted to do as many different things as I could in a short period of time. So I was really focused on not repeating myself and trying to be different in each movie, which is, you know, I guess it's a good way to approach it. But I mean, the more, you know, like Tom Cruise, for example, has had incredible run being Tom Cruise and the rock now is on an incredible run being the rock. So (laughs) you know, if you really want to be that above the title type name, it's better not to be too different each time, but you know, I'm, I'm happy with the path I chose.
0: Yeah. And it's good. You do that. Cause then you don't get pigeonholed. Like those are the positives like the rock and Tom Cruise, but there's other actors. Sure. If you look back at some of those eighties action movies, you know, maybe four or five of them hit and then they just fade out. Cause that's all they can do.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a great job. You know, if you get a good script and you have a good team, good co-stars and everything, it's a great job, but it can also be a grind, you know uh, when you know you're in something that's not really working it's it's very difficult and that's when you really get called upon to show what you can do uh, you know i've always felt like it's it's much harder to be good in a shitty movie than to be excellent in a good mo- in a really good movie
0: yeah <laughs> no, that's true
1: you know you know when you're when you're in a big budget movie with a lot of top people that you have a lot of protection but when you're in a smaller movie maybe you have a director who's only directed one or two movies you're definitely a lot more at risk of sucking
0: that's true (laughs) so let's talk about The Cutting Edge that movie I'm gonna say it's probably one of the few like hockey rom-coms out there and I thought it was pretty cool you played a guy named Doug me and my wife watched the movie last week it's a pretty awesome movie Terry O'Quinn's in it he's amazing yeah you know it's uh, I mean I'm not the first
1: guy to observe it but I mean it all starts with the script and, and we had Tony Gilroy that was his first script ever and of course he went on to write all the born identity movies and oh, wow. uh dolores claiborne and michael collins and he he gets uh he does a lot of uncredited script doctor work in hollywood and he, he's considered the go-to guy really as far as most people consider him one of the best if not the best writer in hollywood and this was his oh, first wow. movie so i was very very lucky to uh to catch that train and then uh, benefit from all his brilliant dialogue
0: that's cool so did you so when you got that movie was it because at that point you know, I'm sure you had to audition, but was it something they were seeking you out for?
1: No, you know, I didn't have to audition for that. They just offered me that one. And there was a period of time there for about five years where I didn't have to have any auditions. And, uh, that was kind of great. And, you know, I chose the ones I chose and I'm, I'm glad I did. I, you know, they offered me the mighty ducks at the same time and I decided to do the cutting edge. So, uh,
0: you wow. know Mighty Ducks
1: obviously was a lot more successful but I, I like the my I like The Cutting Edge I think it's a really good movie and I think people you know it makes people happy and and uh you know people go back and watch it over and over again with their families and it's it just it's not a mean movie not the not nothing against The Mighty Ducks and I'm not talking about it but I just mean uh it, The Cutting Edge makes people feel
0: good that's crazy at that time that two different studios were like okay hockey movies DB Sweeney it's either this one or that one and it's funny the connection that you have with the you know the whole Sheen family yeah I know it's funny and I uh,
1: really did a great job in that movie he really uh, he made that awesome. movie he was you know he's a great guy and I got to know him on the set of uh Young Guns because when I was learning to ride for Lonesome Dove I went down and hung out through Charlie and, and I got to know Kiefer Sutherland and we all hung out oh, wow. uh there was no fun down there I was riding all day and then you know in the in the bars and restaurants with those guys at night so we were having a pretty good time
0: that's awesome (laughs) and then yeah like you said for that big that span did you ever think of that like when you talk to people maybe when you started or friends or family and it's like when you started you did this commercial it gets seen and then everything changes then you're not even auditioning for a good chunk of years. that's amazing yeah, it was, it was good. You know, I mean, it,
1: it, uh, the the good news and the bad news is when you're, when you're on a roll uh, in, I guess it's maybe the same in the music business, but in the movie and TV business, people don't have a lot of imagination. They all want the same thing at the same time. So yeah. it's, you know, it's great when you're in that moment, when you're not in that moment, the problem is, you know, it's hard to penetrate those people's awareness. Like, uh, you know, like I don't know who the guy would be right at this moment we're in right now, but you know, I'm sure I, I can't think of, uh, there's a lot more outlets for, you know, creating stories and telling oh, yeah. tv shows but not I'm sure there's a list of like five guys from the age of 30 to 35 and if you're one of those five guys right now that's great and if you're not good luck getting in one of those rooms or one of those movies
0: yeah it's true no it's definitely like that <laughs> so yeah around that time a big movie that people love fire in the sky
1: yeah. I thought, you know, I, I really, I really liked that script a lot. And I liked the character and again, trying to keep with, uh, playing different kinds of roles. I just come off of, uh, you know, the cutting edge and, and, uh, I did a, a couple of other smaller movies. One of them was called a day in October in uh, Denmark about world war two and the uh-huh. Danish resistance. Great story. And uh, I did a movie called heaven is a playground, a basketball movie. So I did, I was trying to make all different kinds of movies and do as many different things as I could. And then when, uh, fire in the sky came along i was like oh this is a really really great script so i really wanted to uh to be a part of that really great story and, and something i felt like we hadn't seen
0: that's cool that you're able to go to wh- wh- was there ever a movie that you uh i'm sure you filmed overseas before did you film that one movie overseas you mentioned the the war movie yeah uh
1: yeah uh, well we shot memphis bell in england and uh let's see what else and i did a movie called sons which never came out it's the only movie i've ever done that never came out and I really wish it would come up because uh, come out because um, the guy who played my father is that legendary director, Samuel Fuller, who directed the big red one and shot corridor and pick up on South Street and all these he's like the king of B movie, uh, you know, high end b movies. Yeah. Everybody, you know, even people like again to mention Tarantino and Spielberg, a lot of the major, you know, influential directors of our time uh, were influenced by Sam Fuller. So he played my dad in this movie and William Forsyth is a tremendous actor, oh, played yeah. my brother. And, and we shot that movie in France and there was a dispute between the, the director. I don't really know what the dispute was. But anyway, the, it's, it was produced by a Japanese guy who the movie's finished and he's got the rights and never released it. So that was in 1990. So we filmed that in France. And it was pretty cool because Sam Fuller fought on D-Day, uh, obviously with, you know, with the Allies. And he landed there on D-Day. And in this movie, he played a guy who had landed on D-Day and, it just, and now was coming back as an old man to visit. So that was really just a oh, great, wow. great experience to have with him. And, and, you know, I don't know, I never saw the movie, but I, I hope, you know, it's it's got to be worth seeing. I mean, Jennifer Beals is in it and Stephen yeah. Ron, who was in Babette's, Babette's Feast. And, uh, you know, it's just great, great cast. And and so Judith Godress, she's an actress. She was a very young girl and now she's had a long career. So I, I'm just, it's interesting to me when things I haven't had, this is the only one, but movies that don't come out, it's like, it just seems like, why not release it? And, you know, maybe five people will watch it and that'll be $15 in your pocket. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't get why they don't do it. But anyway, that's a, that was a great experience. So we did that one in France, uh, Memphis Bell in England, and then Denmark uh, the next year, I guess was 91. So yeah, I made three movies in Europe and I was very much interested in working and doing that because I wanted to work all around the world instead of just, you know, just in you know Los Angeles or, or Vancouver.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how that happens. How a movie doesn't come out. There's a whole thing right now over the last few months. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie or heard of the, the movie Grizzly. Uh, no. It was so when Jaws, when Jaws came out, it was like such a big hit. So the next year, like you're we're talking about, like some of these movies, you know, they they kind of do the same thing at the same time. So they were like, let's do Jaws, but on land. So they did Grizzly, a bear that attacks campers. So they made a sequel to it. Charlie Sheen's in it. Funny that we're talking about that, but he's in it. Wait, is that a real? Okay, I I didn't know if that was a real movie, but I didn't know if Charlie Charlie used to joke
1: about that, and I thought it was something he made up. Yeah, yeah, because his his line used to be, "Look, I'm a guy who was I I go from being a guy in Grizzly Two to the cover of Time Magazine because of (laughs) Platoon." So yeah, I but I thought it was a joke. I didn't know it was a real movie. Oh no, you know you
0: know what's funny about it too, and I and I bet I don't know Charlie Sheen, I don't know uh, George Clooney. And Laura Dern's in it. So Laura Dern and George Clooney are a couple in the first opening scene of the movie. They're like, you know, at a campfire, they get eaten by I just read about it. There's nothing like no footage out there you can find. But like they're trying to get the movie out right now. I, I was like, man, that'd be the coolest thing. 38 years That, that doesn't make
1: any sense. You know, yeah. you think you, you got those three famous people in it. you think somebody would buy the movie and put it out just for the curiosity. Maybe one of them already bought it and is keeping it from coming out. Or maybe Charlie, or maybe yeah, or Clooney. Clooney's got the money. I don't think Charlie's got the money anymore, but Clooney could buy that thing and probably keep it in his back pocket if he doesn't like it.
0: Yeah, I bet you if he had the money, he would have bought uh, *Return to the Killer Tomatoes* or the one Tomatoes movie that he was in.
1: Oh, I didn't, I didn't see that one either.
0: Oh uh, yeah, it's a terrible movie, but yeah, it's like one of early uh, George Clooney movies. It's funny that he used to say that from grizzly (laughs) to
1: yeah he used to make i remember him making that joke and i just thought he he's a very funny guy i I haven't seen charlie in 15 years but i I always was very fond of him and uh yeah he was uh, not because of any reason other than that we live in different places and didn't come across each other but he i always enjoyed being around him he's an incredibly funny guy i mean no secret i mean with all the movies he made from hot shots to uh you know, to uh two and a half men. I mean, he just he wrote oh, a yeah. book on that thing. He was so he was so good on that show.
0: And then what it, it's funny, so when I was looking at the, like that connection on your IMDB, and I didn't watch two and a half men when he left, and nothing against you, but then you were on it afterwards, and when I was checking the episodes, I'm like, Oh man, dude, that'd be like a cool reunion. All those years later you work with him again, but it was when Ashley Kutcher took over.
1: Yeah, it was you know, I mean Charlie got a lot of most of the attention when he was on the show and well deserved. Um, But the writing on that show was unbelievably good. And John Cryer is unbelievably good. So they brought me in sort of like to give John, I mean, I, I mean, John and Ashton, it worked out fine, but I think they felt like with Ashton, you know, he was better with the girls and doing like uh, comedy with the girls. And then John needed somebody to hit the ball with on that one particular season. And he and I just clicked. We had done a play together way back in the day and oh, that's cool. never stayed in touch or anything. But uh, we had a really good chemistry together. And one episode turned into 11. And that's about as much fun as I've had in my career doing the sitcom with John Cryer because he's such a, a supple comedic actor and having a live audience there. I mean, that was really, really fun.
0: Is that the first time you worked in front of a live audience?
1: Well, non-theater, yeah. I mean, it's the only time I ever did a sitcom, but I, you know, I did about 40 plays, 45 plays by now, I think, and uh, so I've been. I'm no stranger to an audience. It's just yeah, that, yeah. that sitcom thing is a different kind of. It's a hybrid, and it's it's really exciting and good when it, when it's working. I can imagine that if you have a bad script and it's a bad situation, <laughs> that it could be death, deathly. But I love the idea that we're going to do the show on Friday night. You know, at six o'clock to eight thirty, and you know, you stop and start and change. Yeah, set, yeah. And, it's not like you, you know, but still you do the whole thing in about two and a half hours. And I just love that energy that, you know, let's get it right. Let's get it good. Let's surf this wave of the audience. And I really enjoyed the whole process.
0: That's pretty cool. One thing I do hope, last thing on Charlie Sheen, because it's funny, he like has all these connections. So, you, so you're in Chicago now, 2016 World Series. I really wish like going back in time, man, dude, they should have let him throw out that first pitch. For the Indians, man, he's such a uh, for a team that hasn't won in so many years. He is like a legend, like a sports legend. He's like Rocky to Philadelphia.
1: You know what? I forgot about that controversy. I remember hearing about that at the time, and it was a lot of yeah. excitement, a lot of energy on the Cubs side. But yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I'm sure the Indians regret it because they obviously they needed something to give yeah. a little bit more of an edge. Yeah. But I, I, I just seemed like it was meant to be. I'm mean, always at Game Six and Game Seven in Cleveland. Oh, yeah. Thank, thank goodness I was there And, and. And in game seven, when the, the Indians came back and tied it, they had all the momentum. And, you know, I'm sure you could see it on TV as well. But yeah. in the stadium, you just had the feeling that this, this is going to go the Indians' way. The Cubs had their chance. They blew it by using uh, uh, Araldis Chapman too much in game six. Yeah. They took out Hendricks too early. It just felt like, uh, you know, I'm not trying to blame Joe Matt. I'm saying there were a lot of decisions that were made and a lot of things that happened that felt like it's not going to go the Cubs' way. And, and then it started raining. And it was the craziest thing because you, you, you felt like almost like a divine intervention took it away from the Indians. Yeah. So I, I think it would have helped them to have Charlie Sheen there at that moment. To, to You know, they have, you know, since God's rooting for the Cubs and we need Satan rooting for the for the uh, Indians. Yeah. And then
0: maybe uh, maybe they'd have a chance. Yeah, if they would have, I know they always play the music from the movie, like Wild Thing. But, dude, just having him come out in the jacket, I'm sure he would have done it up to a tee. It's not like he would have just walked out and been Charlie Sheen. I'm sure he would have picked the head the way he had the, the uh, he, shape he's a there. showman he, oh
1: yeah he, he would have
0: he would have
1: he would have rose to the moment I guess I I think they were probably worried because he was so deeply involved in, in whatever drugs he was doing for that yeah you know, at the, that
0: time yeah corp,
1: you know I mean it's uh, baseball is very corporate I mean they don't want you know they're not you don't see porn stars throwing off the first pitch or <laughs> you know or or even like really edgy rock and roll type people They they they're pretty buttoned down so but I do think they missed a moment they missed a moment there, because who knows if you know I never know the Indians could get back there. I mean, I think Terry Francona is one of the uh, most underrated managers in baseball oh, yeah. I'm a Red Sox fan. I thought he did an unbelievable job with them, and, and the Indians the cubs were way better than the Indians on uh, Man for Man, and uh, Francona kept them right there. So you never know You know I mean, who knows if we'll even have a season this year, but uh, you know the Indians are probably the, the, they're the new cubs in a way. Well, no i know yeah
0: talking about all that i miss, i miss it like this time of year is like it hurts that it's not that i'm unable to like sit down in the oh. garage and listen to the games but uh <laughs> it's
1: the thing it's probably the thing i miss the most uh you know i like going to have a beer with my buddies you know whatever playing a game of cards or something or playing golf but the thing i really missed the most is going to the ballpark like and i was and i've only taken to the white Sox even more since, i've always been a fan since eight and out yeah but this year the white Sox were this was their turnaround year and uh, a lot of us were really looking forward to it so it's it's tough you know but hopefully uh we will get this uh coronavirus thing yeah. uh, put back in its place and get the world going again
0: hey did they ever have you throw out the first pitch
1: yeah i did it at the uh, white Sox game against uh against the cubs actually it was about 10 years ago maybe oh sweet and yeah maybe i don't remember it was mark burley was on the team might even be more it might be like 15 years ago and i wasn't living here yet but i came in and uh uh, I'm, I'm good friends with Kenny Williams, who was the, the general manager at that time. And now he's the oh, president yeah. of the team. And yeah, he's a good friend. I met him back in the eighties and, you know, play golf and hang out. And he's a great guy. Anyway, I, I don't remember exactly how it came about, but I went to, to throw out the first pitch and the night before a bunch of us went out for dinner and they were like, well, you're shoeless show Jackson. You're going to throw it out. It was not called, I think it was already called us cellular field, but there were still, people still call it Comiskey. And they said, shoeless show yeah, yeah. coming back to Comiskey. You <laughs> got to go out there without your shoes on. And and I was like, uh, okay, it was kind of like I was dared. So I go out there <laughs> with no shoes on, just my socks, which was stupid. And it was it was I had never been in front of that many people where I'm the focus. I've been introduced before at ball games and stuff. And but when you go out there, it's a Cubs White Sox game. There was probably forty thousand people there, and they were really looking at you. And that first pitch thing is a real weird moment because until you've done it, you can't really experience it yet. Where because you have. I think you have half the people in the place hoping that you, you nail it and half the people hoping that you've completely screwed up. And so I definitely helped those people by putting – taking my shoes off. Like, what are you thinking? So you go up on a mound. You're not used to being on a mound generally anyway. But I had thrown the week before or whatever like that, and I was toying with the idea of throwing a knuckleball, which I don't throw that well, or throwing a slider, which I can really throw. And I thought that would be cool, but yeah. they, they, they didn't have a catcher. The guy I was throwing it to was Mark Burley, and I thought it wouldn't be nice to make him look bad. So I just thought I'm going to throw it as hard as I can because they told me that they put the radar gun on everybody and they keep an unofficial, you know, gambling about who's going to throw the how harder than whatever. And oh, so cool. I figured I want to be the over on the radar gun. So I should have kept my shoes on anyway. I threw it. I threw it pretty good, uh, but it was high. And luckily, Mark Burley's a tall guy, and he saved me. So <laughs> but everybody said don't bounce it. He said if you bounce it, they'll boo you right out of the yard. So either hit the mascot or the screen or, or whatever, but don't bounce it. And I followed the advice a little too well.
0: That's awesome, man. So uh so back to your career. That was cool talking about baseball. Uh, so you mentioned Spawn before we talked about like Martin Sheen working with him. That is such a cult movie that I know there's always talk there's always so many movies they always talk about remaking. And that's one that I would hope they never do because it's just so perfect. You know, you, John Leguizamo. Oh my God, that movie's so good yeah I think
1: and I think the great one of the great things about that movie. I did the movie because Mark Depay, the director, had never directed a movie, and he was one of the people that worked on the visual effects for uh, Fire and Sky, and we became friends, and he said, hey, would would you do this movie?" And I was like, yeah, and kind of that's how I've always made my decisions in my life. It's like, who do I want to spend the day with? because there are long days on a movie set, and oh, yeah. you might end up spending three months, and so I, I've been always been trying to work with people that I like to work with. So anyway, I did the movie because of Mark. And then I got to know Michael Jai White, who played Spawn. Oh yeah! And I already knew John Leguizamo a little bit. So the thing about Michael Jai White is that he's a world class fighter. I mean, oh, he's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of pretend badasses in Hollywood, and and you know, but he's the real thing. And and so his his athleticism and his ability, you know, to just embody that certain person that could kill you with his hands it was really, I think it makes it a different kind of thing. I mean, you watch like Spider-Man with like the wimpy guys they put in that role every time they do it. And then you compare it to like Michael Jai White and Spawn. I mean, like Michael Jai White's Spawn could take any one of the Spider-Man over the last 25 years, like with two fingers, just pick them up by the neck with two fingers and throw them in a dumpster. And, you know, it's so it's, so to me, I like that. It gave it a grittiness and a realness that I really enjoyed.
0: That's cool. So what are, are there some people now that you're friends with that you'd love to, or you had, you know, worked with before that you'd love to work with, you know, in the future? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Ed Harris gave me the great honor of, uh, he came and did
1: a, a small role in the movie I directed, Two Tickets to Paradise. And I would love to have a, another chance to work with him. I think he's probably doing the best work of any American actor right now. And then uh, he's getting a little bit older, but if he decided he wanted to do one, Robert Duvall is a, he's the dean of American oh, yeah. actors? I think of all actors in the world. I mean, there's nobody better than you. Take Lonesome Dove and The Godfather and Great Santini. And, you know, you you rack up his uh, his list of movies, and there's really nobody like him. But uh, Ed Harris would be close second. And uh, you know, there's there's a lot of folks that I've never worked with. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people, obviously doing this for whatever fourth decade now. But uh, you know, there's a lot of lot of talent in the acting ranks. Um, you know, unfortunately, the writing uh, in, in Hollywood is not. I think what it used to be. And, and a lot of people direct movies before they're really ready to direct movies, which is why I think a lot of movies have slipped, you know, and, and that they could be better if, uh, if people put in more of an apprenticeship, like, like Tony Gilroy, for example, he was an apprentice to William Goldman, the great William Goldman who wrote *Sundance kid. And so he, he basically was his apprentice and assistant for several years, five or six or seven years. And he put the time in. He learned what he was doing. He learned the craft. And then he went off. And then he's Tony Gilroy. But I think now, you know, as soon as you write your name on a on a script, somebody buys it, and then some agent represents you. And then, you know, people are are put into a situation where it's like, okay, this guy's a great writer. Let's let him direct the movie. Those are usually that's usually a bad idea because writing and directing are such different things. And uh, so anyway, so I feel like the business got taken over by agents, and now you know people that aren't really. That, that that really should have somebody
0: rewriting them or not being rewritten people that should have other people direct their scripts
1: or directing themselves so i think those things have affected the quality of movies do
0: you think it's also like people trying to churn it out and also like there's so many avenues to get movies made now
1: well i think that because there's so few good scripts really good scripts that the, the when a, somebody writes a good script they all want to be like francis coppola or quentin tarantino or or john sales or whoever you know they want to be the auteur and they yeah. wanna be the one to direct it. But directing is such a different skill than writing, and very few people are are Orson Welles, or or these other names that I've mentioned. Most people are good at one or the other. And and when you write a script, and I know this from having directed my own script, and I only directed it because the two guys that I asked to direct it turned it down, and I didn't have anybody that I thought would wreck it less than me,
0: so I wasn't <laughs> doing it to try
1: and prove anything. But I, it was just the best way to do it. I saved a salary, and you know, I produced the movie, so that was important. Um, but I, I feel like you write the script, you have one point of view about the story and the characters, and then if somebody else can come in, somebody who's talented can come in and have another point of view on it, then in that case, I think one plus one becomes three. And I just think that the whole writer director thing is, uh, is over, overused and, and it's not usually the right idea.
0: That makes sense. So after directing that, I know it was some time ago, have you thought about doing it again or is that just the one time?
1: No, I, I love doing it. I just I'm never going to do it where I play the leading a leading role and I'm yeah. directing myself because that was that's too difficult. And and again, like the same way that a writer and a director is a different mindset, a director and an actor is a very different mindset. And there's people that have had great success with that from Charlie Chaplin to, you know, Woody Allen and Spike Lee and you know, I'm sort of not thinking of others, but you know, uh Tyler Perry, I guess maybe I don't really watch his movies, but I guess he does it a lot and and so the thing that all those four people have in common is that they they play a character they've played before, or at least a, a very close variation of a character they played before. So Charlie Chaplin's playing the little tramp or, you know, a variation of little tramp, Spike Lee's playing Mookie or a variation of Mookie. Woody Allen's playing Woody Allen. So they've already got that character kind of figured out Yeah. and then they can direct the movie. But if for me, I'm, I don't really do that. I don't really do like a character that I've I try to play a new character each time. So in finding the character, that's a full-time job, and then if you're also going to try and find the story and and direct it and the the tone of the movie and all the, it's just a very different mindset. So I would love to direct again, where I'm not in the movie or where I have a small part in the movie.
0: Yeah, it's got to be like, like you mentioned, a lot of work. You're trying to, you got to try to juggle too much. Like you're trying to, you know, act and you got to try to, you know, direct other people all at the same time. So yeah, it's like it's like an army. I mean, making a movie is
1: really there's a lot of analogies with the military structure, and you know, you have. Anywhere from many dozen people to several hundred people, and you know if if you're an army and you have a guy who's a general, but the general doesn't also make the soup you know and and in a movie set, if you have a general who's also got to go off and you know be the actor it's just it's just it's asking too much of any one person unless you're you know an extraordinary person like orson wells,
0: yeah, yeah, so you were in a lot of series over the years was there like a particular series because it looks like some of them Maybe you were just on as like a guest star for a while, but like, you know, shows like uh, Strange Luck, C-16 FBI, Harsh Realm. Is there any of those that you thought you like didn't get a fair shake that should have got like more time? Oh, I thought all three of those shows that you just mentioned, I thought should have,
1: they should have all run. And they, you know, for a while I did five TV pilots in my career and four of them got picked up, which is an Uh amazing percentage but they all got put in crappy time slots and unfortunately they just didn't get out of the first year. So Harsh Realm especially was a a really cruel one because that was a great show. It's very similar to the The Matrix, but it's more in a military context, like a military training game that has virtual reality and characters go into the game and then they become vulnerable. Like their body is, is in a coma in the real world, but in the virtual world, if so if they get killed in the virtual world, they die in the real world too. So it's kind of cool. It was a, a real neat spin, and but it had that kind of matrixy energy to it, um, and it was really, really good. And unfortunately, it was it was produced by Chris Carter, who was the guy behind the X Files, which is such a great show. Yeah. And we were not. He was negotiating with Fox for you know the rights to like after a TV show gets into its fifth or sixth year, usually the rights all revert back to whoever created the show, the studio or the person behind it. So Chris was behind the show. So he wanted to get paid a boatload of money for having the number one show on Fox. And Rupert Murdoch didn't want to pay what Chris wanted to get. So as part of the negotiation, uh, Rupert Murdoch just canceled Harsh Realm to show how serious he was about holding Chris's feet to the fire in the negotiation. So, you know, that was a really good show. We did nine episodes and it never, you know, it never really got its day in the sun um one of the the first uh michelle mclaren was one of our directors she that was the first thing she ever directed oh, wow. of course she's gone on to uh you know better better call saul and game of thrones and all the great stuff that she's done and the breaking bad and she's a terrific director so had we gone into a second year she would have been one of our regular directors she probably would, that might have been her pathway there but it's always disappointing and strange luck was was great to work with francis fisher and um, and uh, so many great people on that show and I you know I, that's another show that I thought should have been given more of a chance we had very good ratings but we were on Friday night at eight o'clock before the X-Files and yeah. Friday night at 8 o'clock is a death spot and yeah. so we got a fifth uh, well these numbers don't mean anything anymore because of the you know the way the audience has become fractured but you know in 1995 we were doing like a 15 share on Friday night at eight o'clock which was unbelievable but yeah. that wasn't good enough for Fox so so, yeah, so I, you know, I was a little disappointed that both of those shows got canceled and C-16 is a show from Mike Robin who went off to do Nip Tuck. Uh, he's got, uh, all rise on TV now, but anyway, he's done about six shows, uh, the closer everything Gosh. he's done since C-16 has been a hit. So, you know, he, he, if he had been, if he had been given a little more time to tinker with the show, I think that would have been a hit as well. So, yeah, you, you take your shot and, uh, you know, try to make the best of it. And, uh, I had great experiences on all those shows. So, uh, I, I just try to, you know, find
0: the best part that's available to me at any given time and do the best I can with it. That's awesome, man. So uh, so one thing that's cool, whenever I, like, look at people's IMDb, is like, and they get to work with the same per- people again. And you just said good things about it before, William Forsythe, uh, in the movie Stiletto, which has a ton of great people in it. Yeah, Stiletto was
1: uh, well, my friend Nick Vallelonga, who just won the Oscar for Green Book as a uh-huh. writer and producer with my other friend Brian Curry who wrote two tickets to paradise with me. Uh, that was just a great, uh, thing to watch them, you know, win that whole thing. But, you know, years ago, stiletto was one of Nick, Nick's just trying to figure out how to, you know, how to break through and how do you want to do an action thriller? And he discovered Stonicatic, who was the, you know, who went off to do castle and he found her and she, that was her first part. And he said to me, Hey, will you come down and do a day or two? And, uh, you know, I'm to put you in some scenes with Tom Berenger and Billy Forsyth. I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And uh, his dad, Tony Lip was there. And, that was a great experience. I mean, it's the movie is okay. It's you know, it's not the best thing ever, but another great, great experience. You know, working with pals and and uh, you know, trying to trying to make something a little different than everybody else has done.
0: Yeah, I interviewed one of the Nazi bikers, R. A. Mihailov, and uh, he he had a, he had a lot of fun on that shoot. <laughs> yeah, I know that name. Yeah, he's isn't he? Uh, he's like a he's famous for being a swordsman, right? In movies, like ah, he was he was Leatherface in one of the Texas some Massacre movies.
1: Oh, um, maybe I'm mistaken for somebody else. I thought he was one of the guys that was in Conan with Schwarzenegger.
0: Oh no, no, no.
1: <laughs> maybe I got that wrong. It was yeah. somebody somebody who was known for being good with a sword, which I thought what a great thing to be known for being yeah. good at. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that'd be pretty good. Good skill to have something like that. So now so so what we do is like with this the reason I started like the show is is I growing up I was always fascinated with sequels. So there's so many sequels that are even out now. Like there's a Roadhouse 2, which if you ever knew that, that was the thing. But there's a lot of ones like that. So, so you were in some good sequels. And one that I want to ask you about was, I know Taken Two. I'm sure that part had to be a, much bigger because Bernie in the first movie had a bigger role, and then in the second movie you took over that role. Yeah, you know, I don't know why. Uh, I can't remember the dude who played it in the first movie. Yeah, I can't I remember same, but, Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah uh, anyway, he just I think he wanted more money, and they wouldn't pay him, and then. I said, yeah, I'll do it. I love that first movie. And you know, so I just jumped in there because I thought it'd be a fun thing to do. And I really liked Liam Neeson. And, and then I don't remember what happened when they, they did another sequel and either I wasn't available. I don't remember what was going on, but, um, I ended up not doing the next one, but I had a great time with Liam Neeson. And, um, we had some, it was definitely more there that they didn't use, but you know, it's, it's not about, you know, it's, it's a Liam Neeson movie, you know, they want to see him kick ass. And and so, I'm sure whatever they, I mean, I know we had some funny stuff. We had a barbecue scene and it was, it was much bigger and much longer and, and I had some funny lines in there that I was disappointed they didn't use, but um, you know, it was kind of ad libs and we were all just hanging out, having a really good time and building this character's background. Um, So that was, you know, it was a good experience. And uh, I'd love that. That's another guy I'd love to work with Liam Neeson. I think
0: he's an underrated actor. I think all of his movies, obviously he was great before he was doing the action movies but dude, he can do like the commuter. Just put him in any situation, I'll watch it because he's so badass. Yeah, Schindler's List. No, yeah, I know, I know. That's what I mean. Like he had that. He has that part of his career, which is great. Yeah. And he has his oh, action. Oh, you're right. And Taken became
1: another. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and he and it goes back
1: to uh, you know what I said earlier is that uh, with Michael Jai White, like like it helps with in action movies. Liam Neeson is a is a big guy, and he was a he was a boxer when he started out. He's a physical guy. He's not some guy that came out of Juilliard or, you know, or being uh whatever, you know, a stand-up comedian or something yeah. and then became an actor. You know, he's a real, he's a real physical guy. And that and that comes through in ways that, you know, people that are not that thing usually can't
0: convey. No, that's true. And then another sequel that you had it come out, either was it the same year? Oh yeah, the same year. So Atlas Shrugged 2.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. I had some buddies call me up and say, Hey, listen, um, you know, I'd read the hand run book and, and I, you know, I'm a fan of her stuff. And so they said, how'd you like to play John Galt? And I was like, yeah, sure. When, where? <laughs> and that was literally the extent of it. And, uh, I came down for, you know, four or five hours and I've never even seen the movie, but, uh, I, it was a fun day. You know, there was some people that I liked and, uh, you know, it, it was just uh, just one of those things. I, I, I They were saying, we're going to make a John Galt. We're going to make a movie, a third one. And w- will you agree to do that? And I was like, yeah,
0: yeah, let's do it. And it never happened, but I was game. Yeah, you know what's funny? When you look at the cast, I didn't watch it yet, but there's uh, Michael Gross, Dietrich Baker, you know, you're in it. And then the, the main girl, I can't think of her name right now, but she's in a bunch Samantha of stuff. Samantha Masses. Yeah, she was in a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, but it's funny. You mentioned before, like, eight man out. I know you, I know you're saying, I think it was $6 million, but this movie's budget was only $10 million. And 2012, that sounds very light.
1: Well, you know, I I think that money doesn't really make the movies. You know, sometimes if if you have things, if you have things that are expensive, you need money. And, but a lot of times a a good script is the best money that you can spend. And, um, you know, I've I've been on some really big movies and some smaller budget movies. And, you know, if you have the story and the characters, you could usually figure it out with whatever money you have.
0: No, that's true. Yeah. I'm just going by the trailer. I watch cause there was like a lot of effects in it. So I was wondering, if yeah. maybe that's why it didn't like, wasn't. Well I think received? that's what he spent it all. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I don't know. But Samantha Mathis is great. She was in harsh realm with me and, uh, oh, I loved cool. her. And so, uh, yeah, it's i uh, I'm getting to the point now where I get a lot of times I'll come back and it'll be my second or third lap with somebody when I
0: see him on a set,
1: which is, you
0: know, it's great to have the history. Then it's cool to be able to like, you know, catch up with someone you haven't seen in years, and you're like, "Hey, how you been?" And because you know you're in Chicago now, I'm sure there's some people that are in Chicago, but it's not like you're in LA running into those people. But
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, well, there's a big community here of especially theater actors, and yeah. and, uh, and there's people on these Chicago Fire PD shows and stuff. So I'll see people that come through as guest stars sometimes. But you know, I like to go to work. I like to live my life, you know, in the normal world, and then kind of go to work. So <laughs> uh, I don't really bump into that many people because I don't really operating those circles
0: yeah are you are you still doing plays right now
1: i haven't done one in a while um le- since i moved here to chicago i've been i've been very busy with you know i did as soon as i moved here i got on two and a half men so i was commuting back and forth doing that and, and then i've been working on, on my own stuff sp- the most oh, cool. important of which is uh two two dumb mix which is now uh it's kind of blowing up here on uh you know we put it out on facebook at uh, com slash two dumb mix with no b oh, sweet. and uh And it's, we just, we're past 300,000 views and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know when, uh, how far we are away from the date, but hopefully, you know, maybe I should say we passed a million views. I don't know where it's going to be by the time it airs, but, um, it's definitely getting viral. And Sean Austin's another guy that we did Memphis Belly guy. I loved it. And Two Dumb Mix is just meant to be like a short comedy and, uh, you know, a little bite, you know, watch it on your phone and it's a little, little comedy, a little harmless, a little chuckle to get you through your day.
0: That's cool, yeah. I'll share it before this episode comes out, because I want to check it out. But uh, So so is there any like bigger plans with that?
1: We want to do, uh, yeah, we want to do uh, we're hoping, Sean Austin and I are hoping to do um, many of these either uh, six or seven minutes subsequent episodes where they're not it's not in sequence, necessarily. it's just like another okay. slice of life, like Laurel, Laurel and Hardy uh, not slice of life, but like Laurel and Hardy or Three Stooges, like it's the next episode in their uh, madcap life and uh so we're hoping to do that but you know we don't know at this point it's it's exceeded our expectations in every way i mean it's won over 50 film festival awards and now you know it's only been on the internet for a little over 10 days and
0: oh cool
1: you know more than three three hundred thousand people have watched it so that's a real thing
0: yeah no that's really cool he's big in my life uh because growing up i love goonies and then rudy is like one of my favorite football movies (laughs)
1: Hey, there's no better guy than Sean Austin. I mean, he's, you know, the Lord of the Rings to me. That that whole thing does not work without him in it. Yeah. So, uh, and everything he's been in has been great. You know, he's great in Stranger Things. He's he's a tremendous actor and he's the biggest hearted guy. And he's just, he's great. I love working with him. And that's one of the reasons I wrote Two Dumb Mix was because I hadn't worked with him since Memphis Bell. And I bump into him from time to time and I'd be like, man, I work with Sean. Let's, let's do something. So I just tried to make it happen.
0: Oh, that's cool. So you wrote it with him in mind?
1: Yeah, yeah, I wrote it to, you know, to have something for us to do together.
0: Man, DB, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I think I I know the answer to this, but was there anything else? Obviously, you had the baseball injury. That's something you wanted to do. But was there any, like, fallback? Was there anything else that you wanted to do besides, you know, theater and acting? Obviously, it blew up that commercial. I love cooking and the
1: cooking's always been my passion. I started cooking in restaurants when I was 13 years old, oh, wow. which sounds improbable. It's a whole longer story than I'll tell you on another day, but, <laughs> but I started cooking. And, and so over the next 10 years, I cooked in 20 different restaurants uh, because as soon as I learned how to do everything they made in a restaurant, I moved on to another restaurant. So it was kind of like trained in the streets and, uh, I love cooking and I'm planning on doing something with that. I don't know exactly what yet, but stay tuned. I'm going to, I'm going to bring my passion for food out in another form very soon. Like a
0: cooking
1: show or like, uh, or like a movie? Not, not sure. And that's not, it's not going to be a movie. It's going to be definitely yeah. some like a uh, lifestyle thing. Like, that's you know, cool. a, a show that involves food and making food and eating food.
0: you still, you still cook. You still have that same passion. Oh, I cook, I
1: cook four nights a week in my house nice. here. And, uh, uh, so I really, I love it. And it's, you know, everybody's got their own taste. My son and my daughter are teenagers and they like what they like. and My wife likes what she likes. So,
0: You know, it's almost like a little restaurant where I got to make four different things. Hey, man, that's that's good. If you can, if you can do that, my daughter's only uh, you know 16 months, but uh, I feel like that when she's gonna have to start eating like she's eating what we're eating, but when it's gonna have to be like those fancy type of things, she's gonna want more. Then that's that's a fear of mine. But
1: uh, (laughs) well, I'd say whenever from the ages of six to 12, uh, have her eat like. Uh, vegetarian food and healthy food and everything like this. because then when she starts to rebel as a teenager, (laughs) she'll rebel back towards stuff that you actually want to eat.
0: Yeah, right. Well, awesome, man. ATV, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a blast and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for pushing out two dumb mix for me. Oh, no, don't worry about it, man. No, uh, no, that'd be cool and hopefully uh, baseball's back sooner than we think.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. All the best. Great talking to you.
0: Man, DB was so cool. Just the stories, uh, like I said then in the interview, and now going back and listening to it. Man, talk about a job. He gets to pay to just make out with a girl. And the shot didn't work, but he was getting paid for it and, yeah, having a good time. And don't forget again, check out Two Dumb Mix. And also, the chances that this Thursday, uh, I'm going to be interviewing the producer that saved Grizzly 2. Because back in March, that's the first time I you know, heard of this whole thing with Grizzly 2, with Charlie Sheen, George Clooney, Laura Dern. And then I just happened to be putting out this interview right now, and uh, I'm talking to her on Thursday. But yeah, don't forget, check out Too Dumb Mix. I'll put all of DB's links, to social media, his website, everything, so you can keep tabs on him. And don't forget to review, rate, Share our podcast, follow us on all social media, at sequelsonly, and check out our website, sequelsonly.com. Good night.